Good stuff. Good stuff. Thank you. And welcome. I uh, appreciate you being here, uh, whether that should be in person or uh, online, or maybe you're together with us in the future by downloading. <laughs> in any case, uh, we are together. We are connected. Uh, this is what the Spirit does. The Spirit overcomes any distance, any gap, any technology. Uh, the body of Christ is united, not because of where we are, not because of what we do, not because of who we were in the past, not because of who we were in the future, not because of anything other than Christ and his spirit. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're glad to have you together with us this morning. This is exactly what we've been talking about um, in the book of Romans. If you're new with us or you're just uh, tuning in, we're going backwards through the book of Romans because it's not complicated enough and hard enough going forward through it. We thought, let's just drag this thing around and come back through it uh, in reverse. Part of the reason we're doing that is we're also counting down 16 weeks to a celebration on September 12th uh, where we want to just think of everything we possibly can that God has brought us through in the last, well, by that point in time, almost uh, two years. Um, in addition to that, we're going to celebrate, we're presuming here upon God in a lighthearted fashion, that he's going to provide another facility in the Northwest. Do you believe that? Yeah. I do. I believe that. We have like 50 options. 50. Now, 10 of them fall within the parameters of what we are looking for, what we can afford, what we need. Two of them have risen to the surface as really viable options. And I'd love for you, I compel you, I invite you to continue praying for God's will in that space. Um, we are praying together corporately on Wednesday nights, at least for the next two nights. We did it uh, next two weeks. We did it last week. Uh, please come and be a part of that prayer time. It's in the space that we used to have offices and student space over in the Northwest. Journey Church is in there now. Please join us, whether you're uh, from the North Central or the Northwest. We had North Central representation last Wednesday, and it was awesome. We are in this thing together. Uh, we are counting down to that day in September when we can celebrate all these things, and we're working our way through Romans at the same time. So we've already covered uh, chapter 16, uh, chapter 15, and essentially what we've learned there is that God is establishing his people. It's a long-standing dream of God's. You can find it from the beginning of the Bible to the end. He is always and will be always establishing his church, establishing his people, and he's establishing them in one very particular way, around Christ, nothing else. He says, I, I want to not only establish a church, it's what he says in 16 and 15, he says, I want you to be unified. I want you to be together, which is hard. It's hard to come together, particularly in uh, spaces where we are different. I don't know if there has been a more diverse church than the very first churches. Think about this. The very first churches had multiple ethnicities. For the first time, churches were meeting 
with both male and female in the same room, young and old in the same room, Jew and non-Jew in the same room, master and slave in the same room. And it's not like today where you can look up on the internet and understand another culture a little bit better, understand the language a little bit better. Some of you are old enough to remember traveling globally in 1950, 60, and 70. It's kind of scary, actually. My son and his new wife just went on a honeymoon to Greece without even thinking about it. It was easy. They've traveled. They know, the, they know different cultures. They can learn a little bit of the language. Back in the first century, I don't know how they could possibly carry off a worship service at all. John and Paul and Crystal were new. They're from a different church. They're worshiping with us this morning. And some of us are thinking, well, I've never heard anybody say that before. I've not heard anybody pray like that before. And you all know, that's a very minuscule difference. But expand it out. When we think about, just think about this in particular. When we think about gathering together on Go Weekend with seven different churches to worship together, <laughs> how's that going to work? What if this is the way you worship? Which is fine. What if this is the way you worship? What if this is what you say? What if that is what you say? How are we going to do that? What if the theology differs? What are we going to wear that day? <laughs> Which songs are we going to sing? What language are we going to sing in? <laughs> Back in the day, I don't know how they could, I don't know if anybody was like anybody else. But God calls us to be his people and to be unified. To be unified is difficult, can even be painful. And we tend to move away from that pain because we think that pain and that difficulty is not of God. So we might get sideways with someone in the church, someone in our small group, someone on the ministry team, and it's difficult and it, it might be painful. You may have been insulted in some way. And we might say, for the sake of unity, have you heard that? I've literally heard this. For the sake of unity, I'm going to what? Leave. For the sake of unity, <laughs> I'm going to leave. It's one church, people. It is one church that God is establishing around Christ himself. One church. You didn't leave the church, I hope. <laughs> you got to stay. We got to stay. It's, when it's painful and when it's difficult... We ought to be thinking, now this is a challenge 
for Jesus right here. Now this, now this kind of unity could be an eye-popping kind of unity for the world around us. When it gets painful and it gets difficult, that should be the first sign that God might do something. Because where does God specialize? Let's be honest. He specializes in difficult spaces. You know, he raised Jesus from the dead. That's a pretty big feat. You, you, can, you know, you can raise the person that's dead. Do you know what I mean by that? Like not living anymore in the ground. And then they're alive again. You, you know what I mean by that, right? Not dead anymore. <clears throat> this is what God does. You think he can do something healing? You think he can bring something back alive from something that's dead, something that's gone? Paul speaks about this in uh, Romans chapter 14. This is what he says, the first couple of verses say, except the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling or over disputable matters, one person's faith allows them to eat anything, eat anything. But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. Then the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Paul uses this phrase, weak in the faith. Which implies, although he doesn't say it, that there are those that are strong in the faith. And he says, in either case, don't judge. Why? Because you will possibly disrupt the due process of faith. Those who are weak in the faith should not judge those who are strong in the faith. Those who are strong in the faith should not judge those who are weak in the faith because in so doing, you destroy the process and the growth and the character development of faith. God is up to something here. When you start judging one another, it begins to break down. What do we mean by strong and weak generally? <laughs> what makes you feel strong or weak? Typically, whatever aspect of your character is strongest is where we lean on to be strong. If you are physically big, you rely on that strength. If you have a dynamic personality, you rely on that strength. If you have a, an attitudinal presence, you, you rely on that. You have a, a, a high intellect, you rely on your vocabulary to express your strength. 
Maybe you have an ability to move through emotionally difficult things with a great deal of stability. This is where you find your strength. Maybe it's in what you do or who you are or the positions that you've risen to. Maybe it's the possessions that you have. Maybe it's the popularity that you've gained. These are the things that make us feel good about ourselves, make us feel strong. And we pull that stuff into church. Who gets on the platform? Who gets a leadership role? Who gets a public testimony? Is it not often those same kinds of strengths that press people into those directions or cause us to attract them? Think about this. David, King David, one of the greatest kings to ever lead the people of God, almost wasn't selected. Why? Because he was not as tall as the other guys. This is what we do. We look at the external things. What makes you feel good? Or what, what gives you a presence of strength in the church? Is it your giving capacity? Is it you're always up? Is it that your marriage is flawless? Is it your consistent attendance? Is it your Bible literacy? Is it that you have lots of Christian friends? Is it that you're part of a known church in the community? Is it your consistent devotional life? Is it that you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't swear, you don't dance? Right. Yeah, it was fine until we got to the dancing part. Hey, man, I think that's gone. Even the Baptists are dancing now. In every sector, in every space of life, there is some equation, some code, some framework for strength, for belonging, for what's best and right. And even in the church, we have these codes and these ways and these practices and these behaviors that seem to get us the standing we desire among our church, make you feel good about you and give a sense of approval from God. Am I lying to you? What, what causes you in your life, and I know you live on this roller coaster of you feel close to God, you feel far from God. You feel close to God, you feel far from God. What causes that? It's your performance, right? You look at the things that you've done or not done, and based on your doing and not doing, you feel close to God. Paul is turning all of this upside down. All of what we understand to equate to strength of faith, good standing in the church, approval in God's eyes, belonging to God is being redefined. That's why Martin Luther said, memorize this book. Memorize the whole letter of Romans, not because it's cool and you would gain standing and approval in God's eyes if you memorize the book of Romans. Although personally, if I was able to memorize the book of Romans, I would expect some kind of a gift from God for that. <laughs> just, as a, just, for, just as a nice God, I would think. Listen to Paul. Remember, he's talking about 
being established as the people of God. This is what he's up to. Unified people of God. Listen, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way, as opposed to all the other do's and don'ts that the Jews had been doing, 600-something commands, if you serve God in this way, it's pleasing to God and receives human approval. Kind of a weird thing for Paul to throw in there because most of the New Testament says you shouldn't be aspiring to human approval. Well, that's true, so we know that's not exactly what he means here. Remember, we're talking about unity. We're talking about overcoming division. So when Paul says, when you get this right, which I'll explain a little bit, when you are strong in the faith, this is what's pleasing to God and what gives human approval, meaning those that have been judging one another, disapproving of one another, no longer will do that. When we get this right, we will be approving of one another rather than disapproving of one another. Why is God so opposed to vegetarians? This is what we need to talk about today. <laughs> or, or why does he love vegetarians? Listen, what a, he's not talking about that. What a Jew ate, what a Jew in the first century ate did not, and did not eat, which is true to some degree today for that faith, what a Jew ate and what eats and does not eat was a very big deal. For you and I, it's just like, okay, man, you know, eat whatever you're supposed to eat, whatever. Foods for the Jews, particularly in the first century, could be, again, still true today, clean or unclean, meaning godly or ungodly. Being wrong here for a Jew could affect not only your divine approval, right? Are you with me here? Based on what you ate or didn't eat affected God's approval of you. Not only that, it could possibly affect your whole nation's standing in the world. And it could delay the coming of the Messiah. It was very important for the Jews to eat what's allowed to be eaten and not eat what they shouldn't eat because it had ramifications that were huge. So when Paul says, yeah, you can eat that, don't worry about it. I think that's how he would have said it, John. Hey, don't worry about it. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Imagine for a moment what it is that you see in another person that you think of as an ungodly attitude or behavior. When you see, in particular, a Christian doing that, It strike and strikes you as being ungodly. What are those things? 
When you look at another brother or sister in Christ, what is it that you think is ungodly? That's how food issues were viewed by the Jews. They looked at somebody and thought, that is horrible, wrong, unclean. You are unfit in God's family. We are, in fact, going to kick you out. So when Paul starts talking about food, it is not just like switch to Swanson's. You know, it's... Listen to what he says to the church in Galatia. Before the coming of this faith, before the coming of this faith, right? He's talking all about Christ here. Before the coming of this faith in Christ, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until that faith was to come and be revealed. So the law was our guardian, keeping us in alignment with God. It was actually there to keep you. So in fact, the food did align you or misalign you with God at one time. That was a guardian. These are the things, the obediences that keep us in the space of God, that we might be justified until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, he says, in Christ, you are all children of God. Who's he talking to? He's talking to this church in Rome that is Jew, Gentile, young, old, male, female. He's saying, all of you are established as God's people in Christ through faith. You who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You are no longer Jew, Gentile, old, young, male, female. You are now clothed with Christ. In a sense, spiritually, I can't see who you are anymore. We all walk into the church. We are all clothed with Christ. Ostensibly, if we're all believers, we are clothed with Christ. We are the same in him. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male, female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, listen, religious practices, what we would call them in many cases, spiritual disciplines. You have some spiritual disciplines? I hope so. Although often purposeful, Paul's saying useful in some ways, but is no matter how important they are to you, no matter how highly you value them, or even how truly useful they are, they have nothing to do with what identifies you as God's person. None of the behaviors that you would call good, godly, Christian church behaviors, good and as useful as they can be in part, have nothing to do with what identifies you as a God person. And as if Paul hasn't already sufficiently made his point 
In Galatians 5, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. <laughs> Let me give you a second to just recover from the words. <laughs> and let's get to the meaning here. Being Jewish or not Jewish, has no value. This is their whole life. This is the Jews' whole life. Jewish was synonymous with God's people. Paul's saying, your Jewishness, which is evidenced by your circumcision, is no longer of any value. This is some mind-blowing change. For those that came to be Jews later in life, very welcome change, I might add. But <laughs> this is mind-blowing change. This has to do with birthright and religion. The sum total of the Jewish life birthright, and religion. If you were Jewish, you were established in God's people. And the rigor of your religious practice raised your status within that people. Right? So you were Jewish by birth. You were recognized as such through your circumcision. And your religious practices allowed you to elevate and raise yourself in standard and become closer and closer and more approved by God. And Paul's saying, none of it. What you do no longer defines you as the people of God. What, listen to my words. What you do matters. Faith without works is dead. Spiritual disciplines matter. But what you do does not define you as the people of God. Who you are no longer defines you as the people of God. So this is what Paul is saying to the Jews. Because of Christ, it doesn't matter who you are or who you were as a Jew. It doesn't matter how well you've learned your Jewish practices. None of that has anything to do with what defines you as God. For in Christ Jesus, nothing of this world, religious or otherwise, circumcised or uncircumcised, has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts are you looking for things in the Bible that are very clear and straightforward? How often do you turn to the Bible to get an answer in life and it just doesn't quite come together like you want? You just can't find, it does, it's not clear. I remember one time opening the Bible, God, do you want me to go this way in life or this way in life? I don't even remember what passage it was right now. It said, whether you turn to the left or the right, God is with you. That's not helpful. I need to know if I'm going to go left or right. When I open the Bible, give me the answers. Here's one. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. The only thing that counts is faith in Christ expressing itself through love. When we sing songs, particularly the one we finished with today where it says, 
May the praises to our Lord rise above us. This is what we're saying. What are the other words, team? The praises, the, the joy, the glory of the Lord, the joy of, joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord. All that rise above us means what? Elevates above our differences in how we worship and how we discipline us, in the way we eat, in the way we dress, in the way we theologize, in the way we practice our faith, in the way we sing, in the songs we sing, in the way we do kids' community, whether we have a building or we don't have a building, or whether we're here or there or anywhere. It doesn't matter. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. We want our the joy of the Lord to rise above us, the peace of the Lord to rise above us, the, 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 our gratefulness, Lord, to rise above all of our differences, all of our problems, all of our disputes. And we lift him up and unify under him alone. There is a mark and there is a work. Formerly, to the Jews, the mark was a mark in the flesh. They were circumcised. And the work was the law. The religious practices set in place by God, by the way. There was a mark and there was a work. The only thing that counts now is faith expressing it through love. The new mark faith in Christ. You want to be a leader in this church? You want to be worship, part of the worship team in this church? You want to serve in kids' community? You need to have one mark. One mark. You don't need to be tall. You don't need to be dynamic. You don't need to be male, female. You don't need to be the boss or an employee. You have one mark, faith in Christ. And one work. You love people. You see other people as better than yourself. One mark, one work. That's all that counts now. Faith in Christ. Love in Christ. Selfless, sacrificial, humble, generous love. Simply stated, the strong in faith know the utter sufficiency of Christ. What it means to be strong in the faith is one thing. You understand that Christ is sufficient. We measure that in so many, bad ways, so many wrong ways. We look at someone and we think, oh, they're strong in the faith. Oh, yeah? Well, if they trust Christ for their salvation, they know there's nothing that they can do to earn their redemption, to be reconciled to God, other than Jesus, that's strong in the faith. A five-year-old can be stronger in the faith than a 55-year-old. They oftentimes are. I love when we baptize students. We put a microphone. <laughs> Why are you getting baptized? I just love Jesus. <laughs> Jesus saved me. 
Anything else? No? <laughs> Adults are like, well, here's what happened, and there's all this and all that, and then this and then that, and it's like, yes, just Jesus, that's strong in the faith. The weak in the faith, though, get this, the weak in the faith, in the faith, they trust Christ. The weak in the faith do trust Christ. They probably also trust in the sufficiency of Christ. But they are still compelled for some reason in the behaviors that identified them as God's people before. It could be an issue of conscience, though. They have not yet got to the point where this pattern in their life that they've lived their whole life, generation after generation, they still feel like that they must do this. Ask them intellectually if they need to? Probably don't. They probably understand. You and I probably understand even in our own life. I do trust the sufficiency of Christ, but when I don't do this, I, I feel like I'm doing something wrong. It's an issue of conscience. going to rip somebody away from their conscience. They might not have it completely. They might not be completely free yet, even though they know it. And God's saying, give people a break. Give them a chance. The weak in the faith don't necessarily lack an understanding of the sufficiency of Christ. But they're maybe fearfully still doing these things. That wouldn't be great. But they might be compelled to do them. And here's what Paul is saying. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you, in your freedom, you stop doing or in your freedom, you keep doing. It doesn't matter. The only thing that counts is Christ Are you strong or are you weak? You strong in the faith or are you weak in the faith? Here's a better question. Are you judgmental of the other? Do you look at the person who's still doing what they don't have to do anymore? And you're going, well, you know, they're not quite as free as I am. Or are you uh, looking at the one that's using his freedom and, and thinking, oh, they're just abusing the gospel, they're just abusing grace. It doesn't matter. Don't judge. Don't pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Do not judge or you too will be judged for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured upon you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. Let me just make this simple. Don't judge. You're no good at it. Neither am I. We're horrible at judging other people. We think we've got it right. We don't. Almost never. You have a plank in your eye. It obscures your vision. You can look by that plank and point out the piece of sawdust, and one day God's going to say, you know that equation you were using to point out that sawdust in someone else's eyes? Whoom, 
whoa, I've got a plank in my eye. Don't judge. Stop judging. Are you strong or are you weak? I hope you're both. I hope you're both. I hope you at least intellectually comprehend, apprehend the sufficiency of Christ and understand that is the only thing that counts to be established within the people of God is your faith in Christ. And I hope you realize that every one of us adds to the gospel in ways that cause pride and condemnation personally and relationally. You do. I do. We have circles and hoops and steps and grids and codes, and we make those things known directly or indirectly. If you're going to be a part of this local body, then you're going to be like this or do that or be this way. We do it. We add. We look around and we judge. Do we not? We're both. What is it that still makes you feel strong, good about yourself, and approved by God? It's actually okay to stop doing those things. It's actually okay to keep doing those things. Just don't lump them into the space of what defines us as Christians. If we do, we will never be united. We've got to look at the other person who has put their faith in Christ and has expressions and disciplines and behaviors that are different than mine, that have progressed and in their freedom of let things go or in their fears are still, unfortunately, hanging on to things or have chosen to do them because it's purposeful in their life, even though they know it's not about Christ. Accept them for who they are. Give them approval because of their faith in Christ and pray with them, serve with them, Worship them, <laughs> with them. <laughs> the only mark that counts is Christ, and the evidence of Christ is the work of love. I've got to wrap it up. So here's a couple things. I'll just say these. Recognize what you do and don't do that gives you a sense of strength among others and approval in God's eyes, in your own mind. Repent of your pride, your self-sufficiency in your doing and your not doing. Repent of your fear of your doing and your not doing. Repent of your judgment for others who are doing or not doing. Restore. Seek forgiveness of those you have been judgmental toward. Recognize Repent, restore, reaffirm Christ alone. The established, unified, glory-giving serving people of God are such because of Christ alone. Reaffirm, reaffirm in yourself and in others. It is Christ alone that matters. None of this other stuff matters. Christ alone. This is the people of God. This is the key to eye-popping unity 
This is the key to true, greater faith. Nothing else. Paul is telling us, last but not least, when you approve of those who have Christ as their sufficient one, they've trusted him apart from all other stuff, where they are in the maturity continuum, where they are in their disciplines, when we affirm one another in Christ instead of causing ones to stumble in their faith, we cause people to progress in their faith and move in all these right directions. God, help us. Help us, dear God. to be strong in faith, to know that the only thing that counts is Christ working itself out in love. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sweating. <laughs> if you join us online, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate that. We're going to let you go. Um, for now, we'll see you again next week.